Um, I almost mute myself again. Good <laughs> evening and welcome to another episode of the Edge of Futures podcast. Uh, just me and thee tonight, Ben. Yep. Um, I, t- I keep saying tonight, but I look out the window and we're in this wonderful situation in the UK where it's actually daylight for a long period of time. We get to like eight o'clock and it's still, I won't say sunny, but at least it's light. Uh, so yeah, another evening, another week gone. Dan is in Hong Kong, I believe. Yep. Is he Hong Kong? Yep, Somewhere Hong Kong. He's been I know he's been having dim sum and uh, I know he's literally, it's 1pm over there and we spoke to him briefly. AM, 1am. 1am, sorry, 1am. Otherwise he'd just join us. But uh, but yeah, it's good. How's, how's the week been, Ben? How's, how's everything going? It's been good. It's been a, it's been a really good week this week. Um, I've been doing some online training as per usual. Feels like at least one of the days of of, of my week is is an online training session, uh, which is which is all I'm always grateful for. Um, and then I have been working today. I've had a really good day today, like super productive. Do you know what? You, when you you feel like I've achieved some stuff today, so I've I've done a full gym session. I've stayed on plan when it comes to my fitness pal which are these are always good ticks okay these are always good ticks for me but then i also managed to do some chores at home so when the wife got home she was like oh you managed to do that you managed to do that and i've written five thousand words of my new book so um yeah <laughs> feels like it feels like one of them days where you just you've just won and i've been able to watch the cricket in the background so <laughs> Just these these are all ticks for me. So it's been a good it's been a good week. It's been a good day, um, and um, yeah, loving loving where things are. Uh, so what about you, Steve? You've uh, you've had a, pr- a productive week, have you? Skills in significant. I don't think I've fitted into a whole week what you've just said you've done in a day. Ben, <laughs> five thousand words in a day literally is ridiculous. So amazing you know what, what like. you know GPT what like. can do. You know, like, you know, in terms of <laughs> But yeah, it's been good. I've been heavily involved in in strategy, our financial year for my day job uh, starts again in September. So we're building to the last quarter, uh, projections, but also all of the things that I probably hated as a teacher, I now spend all the time, financial accruals, strategy, all of the stuff now, um, I actually enjoy doing. So I've spent a lot of time doing that, spent as much time as I can with the kids because it's half term. Um, and then I've actually caught with a, a lot of friends. So I think it's I think it's today, but I'm not 100% sure. But it's definitely this week. It's two years since I left Elite uh, College in Education. Oh, so wow. I've been out of education two years um, and almost two years as a, as a CEO of an EdTech company, which is... You're actually an adult now, aren't you, Steve? You're actually doing, I don't think you're I'm an adult. Uh, and our guest has, has seen the worst bit of me in regards to what I'm like, not drunk because I don't drink, but on a night out playing shuffleboard, uh, um, and everything else. So, um, yeah, very childish. Definitely Peter Pan. Um, I'd say you get to know me and you actually find out I'm a nice person, but I literally am the joker. Exactly the same as I was at school. Uh, probably why I've spent most of my time trying to change education and speaking about it on the podcast on a regular basis because I just did not fold it, fit, fit into the education mould um, in, in England. Really struggled with it. And, I, forgot, I yeah. forgot to tell you as well, actually, in terms of... Um, this week, I, I I had a milestone, as in uh, I was thirty nine this week, uh, oh, yeah. on Monday, yeah. So I was thirty nine. So yeah, I, I had a, I had a birthday, um, and listen to this. I don't know if this will have any relevance to anybody outside of the UK, but I'm going to tell it anyway. Um, so birthday cake staple. You've got to have a birthday cake with candles. You've got kids; they're going to do that thing, right? So my wife knows I love a vanilla slice. I'm partial to a vanilla slice. I'm hoping that our guest has has had a vanilla slice, and if they haven't, then... our guest has just left backstage. By the way, <laughs> I think she's decided what is this so, waffle. So, 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 so and... anyway, 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 I promise I'll be quick on this. Uh, we, we, we will ask our guest in a moment if they have ever had a vanilla slice. But anyway, I had a vanilla slice. Uh, but for my birthday cake, my wife ordered me from a friend of ours who's a baker a birthday cake sized vanilla slice. So literally, it was. It probably would make 12 normal size vanilla slices, but that was my birthday cake. So I got to share not not just a normal chocolate cake or jam and cream cake. I literally had a vanilla slice um, birthday cake. I was just so going to ask you a question in regards to, tell us the, the one to 10 of how well you're doing as a self-employed, supported, wonderful worker in terms of your birthday birthday cake, I was going to go. Did you get M and S? 
Colin the Caterpillar? <laughs> did you go Asda or Aldi? Cheap replica version? No, you didn't. You're even beyond MS. You've got your own <laughs> birthday cake made. Yep. Literally, somebody yes, is doing I well. Somebody, somebody is doing, is doing well. well. Thank 39, you. 39, yep. Ben. Welcome to the 39 Club. I am 40 this year. You are 40 next year. And we are going to bring our guest in uh, to build and to big this person up. I would say this individual um, is the female equivalent of Benjamin Button. Seems to, uh, I don't know this individual's age, but puts me and Ben to shame. And also, do you know when you talk about who do you want to be when you grow up? I remember in 2019 thinking, that's the job. I, I want to be this person. Uh, so we're going to bring her in, and let's do the intros. How are we doing? Are we doing Hi guys, guys, how's it going? Good, thanks. Uh, maybe in a big do that big you up too much there, female version. Oh, I don't know. Female. I thought I thought you were going to lead in with my age, and I was like, don't do it, don't tell them how old I am. I'm, I'm older no than idea. Both I can tell you that. What? No way. And <laughs> yeah. we've we've had bad paper rounds. We look yeah, old. Very man. sure, very sure. So how's how's things, Les? How's everything going? It's great. Yeah, it's it feels it's weird. It's like the first day of June and it's like August weather right now in Toronto. There's a massive heat wave here. So I'm not complaining. I love the summer, but man, it's hot a hot bike ride into the office today. So oh, it's just we were talking backstage when we before we came on. I was like, Les, you just it, the life that are for those people who, who who know Les who follow on social media, Les is the the, the, the wonderful children, wonderful job, uh, and by just saying it's 90 degrees, I live in Toronto, I've got a great job, and I get to cycle to work. Just sounds like a wonderful thing, and it's just like something you'd see in a movie. Um, my commute's a little bit easier. I just walk up the stairs and go into the office. <laughs> uh, so I can't really complain, but uh, it's not 90 degrees here. Definitely. I mean, at home, I work uh, in the shed. We actually, I, I normally work from home. We have we built a shed in our backyard, where is normally my office. So actually, my usual commute is just walking across the yard to the shed, which people think is really weird. It's like a, like a garden shed, but it's nice it's you know <laughs> there's been a growth of that i've just ordered mine um uh, in terms of the office in the garden it's only seven foot by seven foot but i have said to my my little girl there's like a little we've got like a little cabin for them and they often play in there her and my little boy and i said every morning you have to make me a, co- a pretend coffee and as i walk out you will be the coffee shop that i attend and she's promised that's what she's going to do so i'm looking forward to it that's the bit that how I miss long will that last work. that's a that's the key question when i will would she say decide? at least i don't even think it'll happen i think the the, the commitment will be <laughs> until the office comes she when it gets to winter there's no chance ella's coming outside to pretend to serve me coffee i'd struggle getting it in the house but uh, so, uh, uh just, yeah. just before just before I go on steve i feel like we need to ask that question les have you ever had a vanilla slice no, I heard you guys saying that backstage, and I was like, I don't, I don't know what a vanilla. Slice. I did live in the UK for a year too, um, but I do not know what a vanilla slice is. So okay. please enlighten okay. me. Bacon, so bacon sliced is... or tart for me? It, no, over no, no, no. I'm a bit disappointed in you, Ben. No, it's like a, it's like a puff pastry. Okay. A layer of thin puff pastry with um, a quite large layer of custard. Okay. Uh, sweet custard and then like uh, more pastry and then like icing sugar on the top. It, it it's it's epic. It's it's an epic cake. Um, it's not a cake. I don't know what it is. It's some kind of t- anyway. Um, next time you're in the UK, Les, vanilla slice. I will do um, we, We'll um, we'll 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 arrange vanilla slice. Yeah. So we've got we've got. Um, this is the second time on the podcast, I believe. I think it's actually the third. Third. Yeah. Oh, wow. So I tweeted out wrong. It's the third time on the podcast. Apologies. Um, Steve's, Steve's going to do the digging now and find out what episodes there were before. I think it was like yeah. one, the first one was very beginning. It was like episode like 12 or something like that. Oh, it was wow. A long time right. ago. So yeah. that was pre-Steve. Yeah, it was pre-Steve actually. Oh, wow. It would have been right after I met you guys. Um yeah. In uh, yeah, 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 Copenhagen. So I was in Copenhagen. Yeah, well, we, we, we've got, we've got to, we've got to make a point here. He's not on the podcast, so we're going to talk about him while he's not here. He definitely won't listen anyway, so it's fine. Uh, which is that Dan still has not done the Google Innovator Academy. Um, he's the only one of the three of us that hasn't done it. So uh, yeah, I, I, we met Copenhagen 2018. Yeah. Um, so that was, yeah, that was, we started the podcast earlier in 2018 in february so yeah which is about right so what 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 episode is it steve is it episode 12 first one episode 12 oh i guess right wow wow i'm just trying to find the the other stats as i'm pulling up (laughs) but 
just as, just as Steve's looking for them, Les, can you just for those people who haven't listened to episode twelve and this other mysterious episode that we haven't uh, we haven't located yet, um, tell us a little bit about you and the work you do at Future Design School. Yeah, for sure. So um, uh, my name is Les McBeth. I'm, I'm the director of special projects at, at Future Design School. Um, so we are an organization that's based in Toronto, um, but we actually work with schools all over the world. Um, our name is a little misleading because we're called Future Design School. We are not actually a school, um, uh, but we do work with schools all around the world. Um, so what we do is we provide uh, strategy, um, strategic planning work, professional development, um, and resources for educators and school leaders to uh, implement large transformational change um, in their schools, whether they're small independent schools or large public school districts. Um, and I think we've been working in like 60 different countries now. So we worked in a lot of places um, over, I think like 50,000 educators have been through our PD programs. Uh, so wide range of activities, but what we really try to do is help schools to uh, des design and develop and implement new curriculum, new pedagogies, new assessment practices, um, thinking about how we can make school um, more relevant and engaging for kids and really focus on those skills and competencies that they need to be successful in life. Love it. That's 50,000 50, people been through your PD, 60 people. countries. Yeah. That's, uh, that's pretty that's impressive. Ridiculous. <laughs> so good. We've, we've been busy. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. we've been around that. since 2015, so that's uh, eight years. Uh, Fifty thousand educators, yeah. Yeah, that's um, that's 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 pretty impressive. And obviously, we met you uh, as part of the Innovator Academy. Steve vowed that he wasn't going to talk about the Innovator Academy too much, but um, obviously, you helped us do that process of um, design thinking. Um, and then we talked about that on the on the other podcast. But 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 ultimately, that's how we've made connection and we've been following the work that you do um for a while uh, and, and one of the things that we wanted to get you on to talk about really is this uh is this future of education report um and we will we'll put some links in the show notes to that um but the future education report that i know that les will talk about quite a lot today the link is in for those watching on youtube and those not listening um it's on the screen now, um, but it will be in the show notes. So Future of Education report from Future Design School. And, and actually, it's design, but not design as in drawing design, is it? It's more broad concept around design. So, um, yeah, could you give us a little bit of context to that? And then we'll dig into it a little bit as we get into thinking around um, the themes that have come out of that, if, if that's okay. Yeah, for sure. So um, a huge part of our, our work at Future Design School is um, a, a practice that we employ and that we also help school leaders and teachers to employ, which is around human-centered design, right? So if you're trying to solve a problem, really taking on that empathetic lens and understanding the needs of the people in your school. And I think um, in the case of schools, it's particularly relevant because we're always in service of our students. So we should always be keeping their needs at the heart of everything that we're doing. And so whether we're working with a school to um, design a new strategic plan to think about, you know, where, do you, where are you now and where, where do you want to get to and how are you going to get there? Um, starting with that student consultation, like understanding what are the actual needs of the real people that are in your building every day. Um, and Or whether we're working on a teacher, helping them to design a new, exciting, experiential, hands-on, project-based learning experience, having them think about, you know, I've got 25, 30 humans in front of me. So how do I keep them at the heart of what I'm doing? So um, we employ that in a lot of different ways. We also teach schools how to how to use that process. Um, but yeah, when we talk about design, we're definitely not talking about like um, pure design. You know, my, my husband is a, an industrial designer. He designs eyeglasses and sunglasses. And so he does pure design, whereas we do the human centered approach. And it's like a philosophy and a mindset for approaching problems. It's not the it's not the only thing we do by any means. I think we sometimes get known as like the design thinking people, um, but it's actually just something that we employ in all of our work with schools. So. Yeah, and I think it's that, just to call it out as well, I, I did find it. Uh, episode 128, February oh. 2021 was the second time. Uh, I can't pull up the link. It's that old. It's before me. I don't have access to the archives. Um, they, I'm not that uh, powerful, so they don't let me in before. Uh, for, um, for the first year, uh, it's I don't know what the logo was. You haven't earned point. access to that yet. No, 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 no. I'm not super. Yes, there are a few more badges. I'm just admin. I'm just admin. But um, yeah, it's really interesting, and I think that empathy model, that whole considered bit of student-centered, but also considering 
all of the dif different functionality and, and facets. So how does community link into that? How does teacher, how does staff, how does parent, uh, guardian, all, all those different facets that are often overlooked because when you're thinking about the future of education, how often and how considered we ask, often ask teachers. Governments are always great at asking teachers, I think, globally. Um, but actually, you know, we ask heads of department how they want to redesign curriculums or anything else. But we don't then drill down to teachers. And sometimes when we do, we definitely don't factor in students often enough in terms of those focus groups. And then actually factoring in beyond the four walls of a building and, and those responsibilities of, like I say, communities and parents. And so when you're designing a future of education report like you've done, which is so vast, what research goes into that? And how does that construct feature into you know, the whole iteration? Is that a conscious effort to be able to get all of those ideas into one place and then report on it? Um, yeah, it's interesting. Each year we kind of take a different focus. Um, a lot of it is informed by the work that we're doing on the ground. It's very much like action research oriented. So we're going out and working with schools and districts. And because we work in so many different jurisdictions with so many different types of schools, we kind of have this really unique like view of the landscape, right? Like we're working with higher education institutions to help them to redesign admissions processes. To, you know, like if, we if we're talking to K-12 about you need to change assessment practices to focus more on transferable skills, then like how do we translate that to higher ed to make sure that those students are going to be able to, to get into those institutions? And then also how are those institutions um, designing those skills? And then it's also very much that industry-informed piece as well um, because uh, our people in our company have a lot of connections into larger industry um, and really innovative companies and things like that. We're hearing from those folks as well. You know, what are, what are you, what do you see as the need? Like, and, and doing the research that, that backs that up as well, you know, like the, like the future of jobs report for 2023 uh, just came out from the world economic forum and they very clearly identify like these are the top skills that we need to focus on in the future. And so, um, for this particular report, we focused on um, strategic planning and um, where schools um, often struggle with that. Uh, and that comes from a lot of our work. We've been doing a ton of work with schools and developing uh, strategic plans. And what we found is that, you know, this everywhere we go, schools have the same challenges. They, they, they run into the same the same stumbling blocks. And like you said, Steve, you know, like that stakeholder engagement, understanding what are the needs of the teachers, the parents, the larger industry. And like, we're seeing that everywhere. So we started to just compile those things into trends. Um, and then we have a team of researchers that's going off and, and doing the, the research that, that would back up what we are seeing and validating what we're seeing. And then same thing with assessment. Um, we've been talking for a long time about the need to focus more on skills than content in schools. Um, and that, and that's what industry is telling us. That's what higher ed is telling us. That's what everyone is saying, you know, especially now with AI, we, we can get into assessment more later. I could go on about that for hours. But um, uh, what we're hearing is that until we change assessment to focus less on the content and more on the skills, then the, the, like the pedagogy and the teaching and the learning in the classroom is not going to change because what's real for students. And I've had students tell me this to, in my, to my face, like grades are real. Like that's what they care about. And so we need to measure what matters. Um, and if we're saying it's skills, then we need to shift assessment to align along along with that and not solely focus on like how much content can you memorize and regurgitate. So, um, yeah, it's definitely based on our work and then also backed by by the research that goes into it after we identify those trends. For sure. I think, interestingly, we have um, a big chunk of what we talked about in, in ours without having read yours was about assessment and actually the tail wagging the dog um, of assessment. Um, and the high stakes endpoint terminal uh, all these words that are not nice about about uh, about exams and standardized tests and whatever else they, they we, we've we've got to do something about that because it's because they are just rote memorization problems aren't they and that's not that's not real world it, that's not real world learning or, or or assessment that's needed interestingly like thinking about where you started talking about the human-centered design and how that, that what then will inform that idea around strategic planning and assessment as well. Um, we had Cheryl um, or Kababa from uh, she was on a couple of weeks ago, and she talked about this this very same thing about 
you've got you've got to get you you've got to have your users involved in the process before and 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 not just do things at people um and education has very much been that that we we somebody knows you know in an ivory tower knows very very well what children need to learn to be successful uh, and they all tend to be of one color one gender one age demographic and they decide what happens uh, and therefore there's no question around that. and not whether it's useful for the user um in 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 the space of it and i wonder whether when you're talking about that idea around strategic planning uh, and i know that that's one of the key elements isn't it about getting users involved and stakeholders well involved in the process um of of planning um why do you think that's important um, and 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 what what what's the kind of research shown around getting users involved yeah i mean there's um there's a lot to talk about there i think that the for me the why or like the the reason why it's important is because like you said no one likes having things done to them right like you you know having someone come in and tell you that you know you should do this or you must do that um, is not effective. It's not, no one's going to adopt your plan. First of all, if you create this plan in your ivory tower, that's not actually based around the real needs of the people, then you can make a really beautiful plan and it's going to sit on a shelf somewhere and no one's going to actually implement that, that plan. Um, which is why also a lot of the, the report focuses on the opera, 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 I can't say the word, operalization. <laughs> I can't say this word now. How to, how to take that plan and put it into action, you know? Um, like, how do you take a plan and actually make it work? Um, and if those stakeholders aren't engaged from the beginning, then they're not going to adopt it, not going to feel any ownership, right? So I think the co-creation aspect um, or the stakeholder engagement piece makes everyone feel like they had a voice in that. And it starts to generate ownership. So before you release your plan or launch your plan, you've got, um, not only are you actually building to address real problems that have been identified because people have told you that these are real problems and not what you assume to be the problem. You know, like I think testing assumptions is a really important part of that process, obviously, and making sure that what we see is necessary is actually necessary. And like you said, getting the diversity of needs and the diversity of people at the table is really important. And then also it creates that ownership and that buy-in so that um, when, when the plan, whatever it is, whether it's like a small transformational plan or a big new idea for education, um, it, it's going to be more likely to be adopted because people have felt like, A, it's addressing the needs that they actually have, and B, they've had a hand in actually creating it, right? Like autonomy, mastery, purpose. If you go back to Daniel Pink, right? Like what motivates people is feeling like you've got some sense of autonomy and you've got a, a voice in the game. So, yeah. I think there's two two key things there. And I, I think you said ownership, but I'm going to use a different term if that's okay. That I find is the same thing, uh, but I always call it as accountability. Mm -hmm. So ownership yes. is it's definitely on it, but I mean, in terms of autonomy, I think some people want it, but really struggle with what that looks like and need that support to, to do it, but also the accountability of give them the ownership, make sure that they're clear in terms of this sits with them, but also then, it's, and they're accountable for it, but they, and I, I remember um, a term from previous CEO um, of, of, of or it's still CEO of Lumina Education Group, real strong CEO, and talked about a few rules clear boundaries. So I talked about autonomy, about accountability in that context of when you create a strategy, when you cr create a, a grand plan for improvement, whether it's like a report and it's maybe going global or whether it's uh, the, the country, wherever, or, or all the way down to a small primary school that's maybe got one teacher and 10 kids, those still exist. I was speaking to one today. How can, when you create that strategy, the operational plan that you've said is so important because people are clear and they're not into it and have not had an influence on it. But then also they're not aware of the accountability. And people always say to me, and I say, so you've written your strategy, bro. When's, when, when's each bit got to be done? Where, where's your roadmap? Where's your accountability? And they say, it's my, my, my strategy's three years. So it's got to be done by then. I was like, you can't have a strategy that's three years because ultimately, do you think everything's going to be done in the last week? Who's responsible for it? Where's it going to sit? And I think that builds a level, but I think it's, getting the culture right, I suppose, in, in districts and schools to make sure that accountability isn't a scary thing, that it's clear in regards to you can do and you have the autonomy to do it, but ultimately that the books does, does sit with you, not saying that you'll be absolutely chastised for failure, but this bit sits with you and you will we'll support you through it, um, is the bit that I see and, and, the, and the bit that I, can, I, I think is, is, is key. Um, another point in, in terms of the report, and it's, it's one of the things that I really wanted to discuss, is around that curriculum. So assessment, 
will influence and i think assessment will change and has to change to influence curriculum but when you said you're working with universities and different organizations and i think that's here and a massive amount of countries i don't know how many you've covered so far in 2023 is that a common theme of curriculum needed to change to keep up with the fast-paced change of the world um or do you think actually it's more of a I think that's specific to, to the US and Canada, do you think, in terms of your research? And the, and yeah, uh, it's, it's really interesting um, that it, it is around the world. We found um, no matter where we go, we're hearing very similar trends um, when it comes to the curriculum. And, and it really is that focus on the skills and competencies. And that's what needs to change more, more than anything else. Um, I think like for me, um, if you think about in the last six months, right, like with the launch of generative AI becoming like widely accessible to everybody, right? So that if that if this isn't the moment to change, then I don't know what is because this is, you know, everyone's feeling the impact of that in education right now. Um, and there's schools that are reacting in different ways in terms of, you know, oh, we need to like lock it down. Students, they're banning it. Students aren't allowed to use it versus people that are embracing it and thinking about how do we use this. But I think all of it comes down to, if we focus on the transferable skills that students need to be successful, no matter what country they're in, no matter what kind of job they're going into, no matter you know what their future holds, they, they all need the same core set of skills um, around critical thinking, creativity, like the four C's that we've been talking about for years and we've been saying we're teaching them, but like, how are we actually measuring that? Like, and that's a conversation that we have had with school leaders around the world, like in all parts, Southeast Asia and Europe, everywhere we go, North America, we're hearing the same thing, which is like, yeah, we're talking about it. And we've been saying we're teaching it. And, may, and some places have even introduced it into the curriculum, but it's not necessarily being measured. It's not being assessed, which is why the big focus on, on journey-based assessment in, the, in this most recent report. But um, until we actually place value on it and say, this is as or more important than the actual content in the curriculum, um, that I then I don't think that we're we're properly like meeting the needs of our students. You know, if we're not really teaching them those skills that is you know across the board, everyone is saying this is what you need to be successful in life. Um, so yeah, I think that that conversation is definitely happening around the world. Where no matter where we go, we're hearing that same conversation, and a lot of it has to do with like the how. How do you actually assess? some of these skills, which is why we've got the the portrait of a graduate, um, which I'll send you guys another link that you can put in the show notes too. We have a special edition of the future education report that's really focused on these skills um, on what we call our portrait of a graduate, which is um, essentially um, the, the skills and attributes that students need to be successful in life. And it starts in the center with some of those um, like core foundational things. Like if, if a student doesn't have a sense of optimism, identity and psychological safety, they're not gonna learn anything in your classroom, right? So starting with those core things, then thinking about learning skills, like how do we teach kids to learn how to be lifelong learners, which we know is one of also the most important skills they can have. Um, then getting into like character traits and competencies and then getting into like the four C's, critical thinking, creativity, communication, you know, like, so we sort of, it's sort of like a, a wheel um, that, that shows those things, but, Backed behind that, we've got done a huge amount of research and we have a continuum from kindergarten all the way up through higher education. Like what does a, a, you know, a kindergarten student look like displaying the skill of constructive doubt, right? Like what does that look like? And constructive doubt is, is something that's so important right now, right? Like how do we deal with ambiguity? How do we deal with a massive amount of information and have the ability to question and understand what's what's accurate and what's not and what's real and what's not, especially in today's world, right? Like there's so much out there. Um, and so what does that look like in kindergarten? What does it look like in fifth grade? What does it look like when you're 17 years old? What does it look like when you're graduating from post-secondary education? And so we've developed a continuum with look force so that it can help teachers to start to be able to say, I can assess that skill because I know what developmentally a student at this age level should be doing in terms of those skills. And I've been given tools to actually teach that skill, right? If you think about creativity, this is always one of my big beefs um, with education is we'll do things like we'll say, oh yeah, I'm teaching creativity because a teacher will give an assignment and they'll put on it, be creative. <laughs> but it's like, how do you, like creativity is a skill that you can teach. And so we need to teach those skills. So the curriculum needs to change. And then we need to actually measure those skills. Um, and actually assess those skills so that students can also see where they are. Um, we refer to it as conscious pursuit, where we talk about a student not just saying, 
not just you know getting a you know a level four or whatever their their grade is on on an assignment, but for them to actually be able to reflect and say, oh, during this assignment, I used my critical thinking skills or I used my constructive dev skills, and this is how I used it, and this is how I can get better at it. And this is how I can help other people do it as well, right? So that's what we refer to as conscious pursuit, where they're very aware of what it is that they're learning. They're like conscious of the fact that they're actually pursuing development in these transferable skills areas. And they can narrate that, which is also, I think, really interesting when it comes to things like post-secondary admissions or when you go to get a job, right? And you're asked a question about how you've used a skill that you can draw upon knowledge and you realize that you've been able to do that over your the career of your schooling, right? So. That's, that's, that's really powerful, especially that the idea of um, being able to then transfer that out of the school school context. We, we, we talk, uh, I must have said about this a thousand times over the course of the podcast, this idea of um, we learn things that have no relevance beyond passing the exam um, because we feel like we've got to put this information in and we've got to get through content like we keep like we keep banging on about and, and ultimately this this is revolutionary because what we're saying is rather than and, and nobody's saying nobody's saying that knowledge doesn't matter uh, so please hear us if you've got a little snippet and you just heard that little bit we're not saying that knowledge doesn't matter we know that information is important but what we're saying is the application of that and the skills to then 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 use that in context and 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 then be a, a holistic person and we'll, we'll get into that the, the journey based assessment in a moment i think that is is critical to this because it it, it lands beyond just passing an exam and <clears throat> excuse me and what one of the things that i would 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 think about that is you talked you talked about this in the report and i i, I was really intrigued to, to to get to speak to this around you and you've said it a couple of times already about measuring what matters and there is no way that you're not that you're saying that the data doesn't matter that we don't need to we don't need to assess we're not saying that we shouldn't we shouldn't um gather information and data in fact you're saying the very opposite of that but what we're saying is we need to measure some different things so i wonder if you could kind of talk to us about why it's important to build really solid data um but then also then get the right type of data to do that. Yeah, it's a great point. And I think it's something that teachers have struggled with, which is why it's been hard for, for anyone to kind of like gain ground on, on how do you actually assess these soft skills. And I think it's something that, you know, a lot of times with content or knowledge, there's kind of a right or a wrong answer, right? So it's assessment for a teacher is, is a little bit more black and white, or even if you're, you know, grading something in the humanities and you're, and it is like some, some level of teacher subjectivity involved, you've got a rubric, you've got something to guide you. Um, and so I think that's why in terms of what data to gather and like what kinds of d data points you need, I think starting with something like a continuum where we've, we've laid out essentially like, I don't, I don't want to call it a rubric because it's not really a rubric, but it's something like a rubric, right, for each of these skills um, that are that are in the portrait of a graduate. And so having that to start with, I think, is really important and collecting data on those things so that you can actually track growth over time um, or and you can see how a student is applying those skills in different contexts. How are they applying in familiar contexts? How are they applying in an unfamiliar contexts? Um, and get, getting that skill development down. Um, and so I think that data collection is is super important um, in terms of being able to monitor and track that progress over time. Um, and we, we actually have a new tool that we're, we're launching at, at Future Design School um, that will help teachers to do that. So it's backed by all of this continuum, this like massive amount of research we've put into this, uh, all these different elements of the portrait where the teacher can actually start to use that to identify where a student would fall in a continuum of development and track those data points so that you are creating um, not a grade because, you know, I, I don't think we want to default back to percentage and letter grades, but rather the students see themselves on a continuum. And so they can see like, how are they progressing towards this ideal state? of, um, you know, by the time you are leaving school at this age, like you should have this skill set in your pocket. Um, and they're identifying where they're at and where they're on those next steps. And there's there are some places in, in Canada that have done this at, at a large scale um, and they've been successful, like the, the province of British Columbia here in in Canada has done this at, at a really large scale where they've moved towards a more competency based curriculum. Um, and it has been uh, it was 
it was definitely, it took a long time. It's been over 10 years since they've been working on this in terms of rolling it out to get people used to this. Um, but, but that student self-reflection is really key to that as well. So I don't know if that actually answered your question, <laughs> but, um, but yeah, data is super important and collecting that data and showing that data over time. Um, like it's, we're still measuring what, you know, you know, we're still doing assessment and we're still measuring things, but you're exactly right that we're not measuring the same things. We're not measuring like, can you memorize these dates from history? But we're asking you like, do you understand the idea of like cause and consequence? And how can you think critically about information that you're consuming and apply that historical thinking lens on it and think about, you know, history tends to re repeat itself. So where else have I seen situations like this in the past? And how can I apply that to my understanding of today? Like those are big skills and big ideas that to me is way more important than like, do you know, like the date that Franz Ferdinand was shot or whatever is the piece of historical information that, you know, those things are super important because if you don't understand those things, you don't, have the, you don't have anything to reflect upon or to build upon. So you need to know the knowledge. But I think what we should be assessing is that application of the skills in relation to that knowledge. So content is still very important, but I don't think it should be king. <laughs> yeah, and, and also, I have no knowledge from school. Because when you said Franz Ferdinand, I'm thinking, the band, the band? were they shot? I was like, have, <laughs> have I missed the news? Like, I'm know, sure I 1911 know. or something silly like that, 1913. No, they, they've yeah. done well. They, the band still look well, and they're still touring. <laughs> they've been going for follow staff. <laughs> You're absolutely smashing it, but uh, but yeah, I think it's a it's a real interesting concept, and I think con competency is something we talked about. You know, the ability to demonstrate over a period of time, I think assessment is another one. A variety of different assessments. We're not saying exams are, are literally need to be completely got rid of. I've never touched ever ever again. What we're saying is is a variety. I think, and I think it says it in the report, like a, a variety of different assessments by different individuals, including self, so student, teacher, um, students, but also then creating products or content and cre creation of uh, different aspects rather than just regurgitation and or curating it, um, and then different things in terms of also maybe doing a podcast verbalizing some of the different things in terms of reviewing a reflection all those different things and also the timestamps. like you know we have a fascination of at this age everybody will be assessed at the same time and it's just not a real life thing people maturity happens at different things and acceleration at different points and i was speaking to a family member who has a, a young daughter and the school is in quite a, a strong area of, of, of yorkshire in regards to very affluent high demands from parents and this can you can see the school's been pushed in a certain path but they were doing some stuff at the age of, I want to say, year three. So I think seven that you wouldn't even do at the age of 11 or you're coming out and going into high school in a very different way. And I was like, why are they doing that? What we're we preparing them for? I was like, you're preparing something that's going to happen in four years. I was like, I don't understand. And, and, and yeah, it just absolutely blew my mind a little bit. And I was like, because ultimately what's seen as a, what they were classing as a fairly one minute actually could accelerate really quickly and be really strong in two weeks. We're just doing it a snapshot and then saying that's where we're going to make a judgment and and that's it. If you don't pass it at this point, then you're this failure. I just it blow it blows my mind really. And I, we always liken it like um, a driving test. Imagine if at the age of or everybody gets to a certain point in a year and every country globally then says you get to the age of seventeen. All around that time, 16 or 17, in this week, everybody passes a driving test. I, I don't think it would happen because everybody would then say, well, that's not really right because they might not be ready, but we do it in the school system. It blows my mind. Yeah, so. yeah we say, uh, we, we often talk about how time, like, traditionally time has been the thing that's been fixed, right? Um, and so the depth of skill being developed or their understanding of the content varies. So, you know, you know you've got a 60% and you've got a 90%. But like time's up, we're moving on, right? And when you think about what we call journey-based assessment, skill is the constant and the time becomes variable. So the goal is that ongoing journey through actionable feedback. So it's flipping that what's what's the constant and what's the variable there, right? And so I think that that's exactly what you're saying, right? That you know, we've spent we 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 worry too much about time. And even when it comes to like grouping kids by age, and you know, we've seen some really interesting things happening where it's like, what, you know, what if you're at a fifth grade level in math, but a 
seventh grade level in, in reading and literature. And so how do you start to personalize for kids, which I think is really, really important. I'm going to anonymize, anonymize it because uh, I was having a conversation. I'm supporting an organization that is creating an online, a global online school. Can't too, speak too much about it. It's under NDA, but that's absolutely fine. Really loving it. And they were saying that the launch of it will happen in September. Um, so we're doing all these conversations and they were talking about like there are year groups and everything else and and how and I was like, okay, so if you've got this number of students, you're gonna need an awful amount of teachers. I was like, have you considered maybe doing it either key stage or completely getting rid of that and everybody's has different aspects and is on a journey, but they all learn together and they were like, Can we do that? And I was like, it's in the UK in terms of some of the entity. I was like, we are going through we're in conversations with Ofsted at the minute and I was like yeah, let's see what they come back with because they, they might stress out a little bit in terms of that concept. But if you look at synthesis school as an example, you've got people globally all coming together from the age of four or five to 11, trying to solve problems collectively. And I was like, the result and the way that they express themselves might be really significantly different. And the way that they can put that forward at the age of four, they might not be able to write and analyze something in the written way, but verbally they could do or build a great prop. I was like, we're putting the definition of age as a restriction, but actually, I don't think that really happens in, and we talked about it before. Uh, my kids, I've got a three-year-old, oh, she's going to be three in July, and an 18-month-old uh, downstairs. Uh, they're currently crying and, and kicking off, and but their development is, is so quick in different aspects, where you've got Ben's kids that are swimming for uh, uh, international level, and Les's kids that are build, basically building a house at the age of four. You know, everybody, like, you know, it's, it's all fluctuation, isn't it? And, and actually... Nobody is the same. And I think it just amazes me that we build it based on GPA and this result of definition of what we stand as an achievement, but we don't build it based on general cognitive ability, one's ability to develop and progress over a period of time and predict on that. We will still track, we will still report. But as you've said in, as, uh, tonight, and, as, and you've said in the report, we're reporting on maybe the right things when right now it's focused on one thing and I'm not saying it's a wrong thing, but it's only one individual element of, of an individual's um, talent and, and, and not everybody's the same. Um, yeah, and so same thing with, the, you mentioned earlier the idea of a variety of assessments, right? When you talk about journey-based assessment, um, we know that some students might perform really well on tests, right? You've got kids who've learned to play the game of school, they know how to, to do those high stakes assessments. But you're going to actually get a much better picture of what a student learns if you also what we call triangulate the evidence. So thinking about conversations, observations, as well as products like a test or an essay. And I think the impetus for change there is also, you know, like we've, we've talked about earlier with, you know, the rise of generative AI. You can't just rely on on teacher generated prompts and students creating answers to those prompts and handing it in and you as the teacher grading it because there's no way for anyone to know anymore like whether the student um, is, is actually able to then articulate that, which is why I think conversation-based assessments yes. are amazing because yes. you can sit down with the student face-to-face -face and say, tell me what you know, and then you can assess their understanding based on that conversation. Um, and that could be done in combination with a product. You know, you might do something where your students are are going on some kind of experiential learning activity and they're uh, taking photos of what they're seeing and then they're coming back and they're doing a written assessment and then they're sitting down with the teacher and the teacher's giving them feedback and then maybe there's a peer assessment part of that. And uh, so there's all of those things pick, like kind of put together is going to give you a much better picture of whether or not a student understands. And some students might be able to display learning in different ways. You know, I worked at a school where um, a large percentage of our students had IEPs or, you know, designated um, different learning needs. And a lot of those students were given what we call accommodations. I don't know if you have the same thing in the UK, but um, for many of those students, their accommodations were things like oral testing. So they write a written test and then they have the opportunity to sit down with the teacher and speak out loud and explain each of their answers on a test. And that those answers can be contributed like towards their grade on that test. And my point of view was always like, wouldn't every student benefit from this? Uh, so, and so that's, that's where the conversation-based assessment comes in, right? Like, yeah, you, you might still have your students write an essay because that might be a skill they need for post-secondary. I mean, that's a whole other conversation we can have later for the value of writing a five paragraph essay. I think it's an important skill, but, um, but 
I think that more interesting to me is like have the student write the paper and then defend that paper to me as the teacher. I want to poke holes in it. I want to say, tell me more about this. And can they answer those questions? And that's where you're going to understand whether a student really understands a concept. It's time consuming. And I know that's something we hear from teachers is like, how can I do this? I have 35 students in my classroom. How can you do conversation-based assessments? But there are ways to do it. We've, we've seen it done. We've, we've helped schools to, to implement this in their schools at a, at a, at a wide level. Um, and there's lots of different ways that you can think about those informal conversations you have every day with students. That should all count, right? Like, it shouldn't just be the at this moment in time we've decided we're going to assess you, but it should be like last week you did a scribble on the whiteboard that showed me that you understood that concept. So that should count towards your progression towards the learning goals. So this this um, you can see me if anybody's just listening, uh, you'll <laughs> you'll have missed how excited I'm getting when you're talking about this because. Um, only a couple of weeks ago, I wrote um, a post on LinkedIn about actually, I, I think a Viva style assessment, so where, where a doctor would have to always justify their thesis, and they had to, they had to be able to then defend that against critical analysis from other people, from peers, from people that are more senior than them, and then eventually they're seen as competent and they and they pass and they get their PhD, their doctorate because they have been able to defend their, their their position. And maybe that's because I've got a philosophy background uh, that, that I feel that that is the, um, that is truly, if you, if you, all you can do is regurgitate it in a format that you've been given so that it passes a certain set of criteria, but you don't really get it. You don't really, you, you can't defend that against other things. Um, and uh, and obviously there's that whole, that premise around if you can't explain it to a five-year-old and to your grandma at the same time, then you do you really understand it and wh whether you can do that anyway. And that level of depth of understanding and breadth becomes so much, it, it has so much more longevity. And this is, this is the thing that I, I think, maybe I'll get off my soapbox soon, but probably won't. But I feel like we are so narrow-minded when it comes to education generally. And so, like, it's we think it's about that exam rather than how is this going to help us in our lives. Um, and, and we think about, like like you said, get to the end of a GCSEs or whatever it is, the end of high school, and then get to university. And as long as you get to the next stage, the other stuff doesn't really matter anymore. Yeah. <clears throat> that's that's not what we're talking about. And this journey-based uh, assessment and the idea of a portfolio it, again another thing that we've we've that we're hearing um continuously around portfolios of evidence that are over time you you mentioned there about the scribble on a whiteboard two weeks ago actually showed some level of competence and those competence-based skills assessments and portfolio of evidence is has got to be the way we go um and we've got to find a way to get through that time consuming and the fact that we can't put everybody in, in roles um in an exam hall for two hours and, that, and that's enough um we, we've got to do, we've got to do better than that haven't we yeah and i think um something you said there was, was really interesting too about um how you know we, we we sort of put things into boxes and and it's like even if you have to stand up and defend for example like if you're this idea of like i'm going to defend my paper if a student, if you know, if you have that, that experience and the student can't defend their work and they're like, I don't actually get it. It's not like, OK, well, you failed or you only get like a C on that on to the next thing. Instead, it's OK, well, now you know what you don't know. So go back. Right. That idea of like grappling with things. And like that's what really gets to that deep understanding is when you don't quite understand something and you have to deal with that ambiguity and you have to think harder about it. And sending a student back to the drawing board and saying, you know, OK, you, there's holes in your in your understanding here. Here's where they are. Let's go back and, and do some more. And that idea of um, most consistent and most recent performance, like the most recent thing, I think, is really important there because a student might fail something or, you know, not do well on, on showing understanding of something in October, but by May, they might understand it. But if we're going to penalize them because they only got a C in October and that's going to count towards their overall grade, we're not actually rewarding their growth. We're, we're penalizing them for trying and failing. And so we talk a lot about, you know, we do encourage failure and, you know, embrace failure and like all that stuff. But if, the, if at the end of the day, their, their grade is like a cumulative average of everything they've done over the course of the year, 
um, we're not actually rewarding what what the, how they've changed their thinking over the years. Ring so, the bell. Ring yeah. the bell. The bell. Yeah, ring the bell bell, right? Like yeah, yeah, yeah. if we want to do that, then we we can't penalize kids for failing. So it has to be most recent, most consistent. And if you can't defend what you're doing, um, it's not like, well, we'll put that in a box, like you said, and we'll move on to the next thing. But it's rather, all right, well, let's work on like what it is that you need to work on. So I think that's another key key element of the journey-based approach is most recent, most consistent performance in addition to the triangulation of evidence. So it's really, yeah. I was having this conversation, I think it was eight, not in 1860, I had this conversation. Was it 1860 or so? I think Cambridge University created the exam style situation because they were doing conversational style assessment to prove somebody's competency and level of, of skill in something like you do for a PhD and, and at that level. But they needed the thing to bring to mass market. I might be absolutely butchering this and get it wrong, but I think they needed something to bring it to mass market. And they said, how can we get more people to demonstrate that they have this ability? Because we don't have time to do this at this level. So what we'll do is we'll introduce this exam system. And now we're in a position where we're going, that's 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 the only way that, you know, how else could we do it? There's a great way to do it. There's a great way to do it. There's steps, there's nations, there's, there's districts, there's all organizations that are doing it. Let's follow those breadcrumbs and learn from that. That actually it might have taken Canada or an, as a as a country or a, a district, Toronto or or wherever, ten years. But actually, by following some of the things that they got right and some of the things that got wrong, actually that could be a quicker process. It could be a longer process. But there are steps when people say can't be done. Exams are the only way, and that's how and the fairest way. Was it built on fairness? It was built for ma- mass production of demonstration of, of competency. That's the only reason it was created. It wasn't built because it was great. It was built for, for taking it from being able to assess 20 people at a time to thousands of people at a time. Like, And we still hold it up as this beacon of, of the best assessment, which I just it amazes me. It blows my mind. And I think that's I think the struggle that we have globally, definitely in, the, in England, is... Is it the fact that we're in a, a crisis in terms of recruitment uh, for, for, for teachers? What is it that is preventing us doing this? It is going to be harder. It'll take probably more resource. It will take a shift in, in, in training, support for those teachers to get to that point. And everybody in education, I think that is the thing that's preventing it. It's that scary thing of the how and how do we get to that point? Because right now, right or wrongly, what's taking place is is more sustainable but than actually what we need to do and what we must do. I think that's the, the, the complexity of what we're facing. I think majority of people will look at it and go, we know it needs to change. The how is there, but the really scary bit is the challenges and the hard work that will take us to get to really what our students and our young people in our education system and, and the world deserves Let's be honest, I think we're in a position where exams is not what, what our students deserve and, and, and what is needed. But I think it will take time and it might take 10 years. But we talked about the finished model. We talked about now the, the different model. There's micro-credentials popping up in Australia. There are different things that are really popping up that are fascinating, that are leading the way. What I say is, and if anybody, if, you know, if, if, if the edu- education ministers are listening, definitely not. Um, it's just Ben's mum and my mum. Is just be brave. Like, do we talked about risk and psychology? Let's just let's fucking just give it a go. Well, and I think now is actually the moment, right? Because we talk about like you know the change from 1860 till now. Obviously, big changes. But the last six months, right? Like artificial intelligence can could be the thing that makes this large scale transformation possible. Because one of the biggest challenges we've heard, you know, and we've been running, we run these, we call it uh, journey-based assessment, like PD, where we go into, and we, and we combine it with a program called Hack Your Curriculum, where teachers take their curriculum, they redesign their learning to be more, you know, student-centered, project-based, um, experiential. And then we infuse into that journey-based assessment. So we're having teachers kind of redesign their classrooms. Um, and until now, the, the challenge we've heard the most from teachers is like, this is amazing, but 
I still need to somehow be able to understand with all this anecdotal data that I'm collecting, I'm collecting all this qualitative data, you know, feedback to my students in written form, feedback to my students in conversation form. How do I take all that and quickly create a snapshot when I've got 35 different students, right? Well, now we've got artificial intelligence. You can take massive amounts of qualitative data and run it through generative AI and it will tell you, like it will summarize for you in real time. Like this is, we can now move away from the need to have purely quantitative data to actually using all, and teachers are doing it, right? Like teachers are already giving amazing feedback to students. They're already, you know, writing comments, having conversations. And it's like, now we just need to capture that and then run it through AI. And now we can get quick snapshots where we can say, okay, Ben, this is where you're doing well, based on every piece of evidence that I've collected over the past year. These are the four things that you've done really well. And these are the three things you need to work on. And like, Steve, yours are different. And based on that, then we can start to personalize learning and say, okay, well, Ben, you're going to go down this path because I see that you need to work on these three things. And Steve, you're going to go down that path because you need to work on these three things. So I think that, you know, the pace of change obviously has gotten quicker, but in the past six months, year and a half, like however long it's been since ChatGPT took over the world, right? Like this is, we did, we did it ourselves at Future Design School. We actually took all of the qualitative data. So we have, like I said, of 50,000 teachers who have gone through our PD programs. And at the end of every PD program, we ask the same question, which is describe your experience at Future Design School in 280 characters or less. And it's just like a, a way for us to gather, like, what are people getting out of this? And we ran that through AI and asked it to summarize it to us in five points. Um, I'll, I'll, I, I don't even know if I have them here with me, but we turned it into an ad called ChatGPT wrote this ad because it was, um, so good uh, in terms of summarizing like what it is that people are learning from us. Um, so, you know, I'm gonna see if I can find them here, but ah, yeah, here it is. So it, it, it summarized for us in, in five points, um, practical, actionable and informational activities that teachers can use in the classroom right away, engaging ener energetic and well-designed workshops, encouraging collaboration and provide opportunities for teachers to connect, provides innovative and flexible strategies that can be used in various subjects and offers a structured and organized approach to help teachers effectively plan and implement meaningful assessments. And we were like, boom, we did it. <laughs> but like, we could not have analyzed like 50,000 qualitative data points without AI. So, you know, it's, I think that that's the, the, the thing that's gonna like make this happen, yep. <laughs> you know? So don't be scared of it. People, what did you say? Don't be, don't be bold or be brave and don't be scared of AI. <laughs> Yeah, that's it. Yeah, and and, and interestingly, the um, uh, this this is going to give some stuff away. But um, I uploaded your future design school, future of education report into ChatGPT. Oh yeah, and asked it to summarize it, and asked it to give <laughs> some questions. Now, actually, we've not used any of them because I'm sat here looking at it, but I'm thinking to myself, like you, you're absolutely right. That whole the vastness, the the reality of teachers having enough time to do it with their group of students over that time and then design learning for each individual and personalize it it's 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 nigh on impossible for a human to do that but it's not a challenge for an ai machine to do that for us um and that's why that's the benefit of it and we know we've got lots of things to, to worry about but ultimately you then throw into that mix the stuff that you were talking about about um stakeholder um, investment so they then talk about not just yeah these are the things that i'm good at and these are the things i'm i need to work on but also these are the things i want to work on as well so you throw that into that mix and it starts to create a personalization around that but it's it's owned by the student that agency stuff that we we're talking about earlier this becomes a a kind of schooling and education system that you that we would all dream about it's a kind of place that teachers thrive because they feel like they are um getting to know their students and helping them thrive uh, it's a place where students thrive because it's not just done to them like we've talked before it's a place where parents feel like the children are getting the kind of education that, that we want because it's because it's catering to their needs and i love that point you made and i'll and I, I, we'll, as we round this up here i think it's it's really poignant based on what you what you said that the stuff that's done for students with ieps or with um additional needs actually that good accessibility and good ways to give them um, accommodations, as you called them there, everybody needs that. 
and that's what that's what everybody deserves and so we want to build an education system globally that that is is personalized and that and is designed intentionally rather than by default so um les it, this has been episode number three with you um and we we'll hope that that this is is not the end of the conversations because i think this is these are the kind of things it absolutely resonates with the trends buckler that we talked about it's resonated with the 200 odd episodes we've done previously um and it feels like um there's a mission that's happening so thank you very much for joining us all the way from not vancouver that's well on the other side of canada steve just so you know um it's like uh, miles and miles away um uh, but um from toronto thank you for, for joining us and uh We'll put the link to in the show notes again, and I'll put the on screen now for the future of education report that we've talked about. So there's a bitly link there for you to to have a look at yourself, and uh, we'll also put the stuff in there uh, when Les sends it across about the portrait of a graduate, so we can uh, we can use some of that. So Les, thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure to be back, and really appreciate you giving me three hours of time now on the Engine Futures podcast. So thanks, <laughs> thanks for listening to me rant. <laughs> Only two from me so far, so we've we've still got we've still got a while to go yet. But uh, yeah, absolute pleasure. And uh, yeah, let us know what you think, everybody. <laughs>